Well, it's a joy to be back at St. Mark's, and uh, thanks, Andrew, for the welcome. Uh, Andrew asked me what would I like to preach on. I suggested Philippians 1, 9 to 11. He said, oh, that's good, uh, but we're doing it in a series. And so I have no idea what you've said, and I'm hoping that I'm not going to clash and disagree or contradict something that's been said, of course. Uh, but uh, great to be here, and let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. All you need is love. We've been told that for 50 years or 60 years. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. All you need is love. You may remember in 2017 when Australia had uh, the plebiscite on same-sex marriage, uh, we were told by the then Prime Minister, uh, love wins. When a friend of mine left his wife some years ago now, uh, he said it was because of love. People steal and murder for love. I remember hearing a convicted murderer uh, um, say, I killed the children because I love them, meaning she didn't want her estranged husband to have them. All you need is love. And on the surface, it looks like the Apostle Paul agrees with that. The Apostle is sometimes accused of being a fairly judgmental, harsh, hard, condemnatory sort of character. But he says in this, uh, these verses, I pray that your love may abound more and more. That your love may abound more and more. He doesn't define that love. Love for God, love for neighbor. I suspect he means both in effect. Uh, loving God and loving your neighbor being the great two commandments and relatively intertwined, I think, in scripture. And abound more and more to keep on abounding. That is, you'll never get to the, the sort of upper limit to say, oh, well, I've got enough love. I don't need now to keep abounding more and more. It's a bit like a tide coming in wave upon wave upon wave of growing love like an incoming tide. And to abound deeper and higher and wider, to endure more, to embrace more, and so on. All you need is love. But is that really true? You see, love actually is not all we need. And Paul also gets that. Because when he wrote that sentence, he qualified it quite significantly. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. You see, for Paul, true love is not merely blind and indiscriminate. Uh, loving anything and everyone and any, any, anyone. For him, the heart and the head are, are both involved in the love that is to be abounding with all knowledge and depth of insight. But what knowledge is Paul referring to? I guess the knowledge is knowing God. Knowing about God and knowing God in a relationship. If we are to love God... We are loving the God whom we know. 
And therefore, we're also loving the values of that God whom we know. His priorities, his desires, his character, his, uh, his, his sort of uh, inner values, if you like. To know God and to love God and to love his values and what he's on about. And that's why Paul says with knowledge and all discernment or, or a depth of insight. That is, we, we, we are to love in an abounding way, but it is also discerning. It's based on our knowledge of God and therefore our knowledge of God's character, values and priorities. And all of that's possible because we know God in a relationship. It's not merely knowing about God, but knowing the God whom we love. And that's why, for example, that the love that Christians should manifest is, for example, patient and kind, not puffed up on fleeting. Paul goes on about that, say, in 1 Corinthians 13, in that famous passage. Love, you see, is discerning morally. Love, therefore, will be faithful in marriage and not promiscuous or faithless. It will be loyal. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but on the other hand, it doesn't ignore wrongs. It's a discerning love based on the knowing God and therefore his character and values and priorities. We're to love in truth, a love that doesn't merely turn a blind eye to sin, for example. A love that is discerning, and it doesn't just pretend that we're all one big happy family. So Paul doesn't simply pray for abounding love, love to abound more and more, full stop, but rather to abound more and more with all knowledge and depth of insight, as he puts it here, or discernment. But why does Paul pray that? We have like a domino effect in these couple of verses. He prays this so that this, so that that, and so that something finally. There's sort of three stages, if you like, each sort of consequential on the one before it. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, firstly, so that you may be able to discern what is best. You may approve what is excellent, is another translation for this. This one is to discern what is best. But it's not mere discernment. It's actually, if you like, the approval of what is best, to affirm what is best. Not best, not, not merely to, to understand something, but to actually affirm or approve what is excellent or what is best. And the sense of discerning or really approving here is the sense of, of almost testing it so that you know what is best, what is best in God's eyes. That is, here is an, a growing understanding of God and as you grow in your relationship with God, you come to affirm and approve through the testing, through that relationship of what God values as what is best. You see, it's not an indiscriminate love. It's a discerning love. It is loving what is pure and holy and good and godly. Later in Philippians chapter 4, Paul will say, think on what is truthful and good and noble and pure. And here the idea, I think, is to love what is good and godly. 
it begs the question for us, do we actually approve what is excellent? Do we discern what is the best and affirm what is the best? We know that being faithful in marriage is a good thing, but do we love faithfulness in marriage? That's what Paul's driving at here, I think. We know that generosity is good, but do we love being generous? We know that not being corrupt is good, but do we love integrity? As an old hymn puts it, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. That is, we might understand and discern, we could say, what is right and good. But this is actually language that takes us a bit more than what I think this translation does. It's to actually affirm or approve what is excellent, to love what is excellent. See, godly behavior is not merely doing the right thing. We know that. We know that from parables of Jesus. We might say, oh, yes, I've got to be generous, and we give generously, but begrudgingly and reluctantly, and we're muttering under our breath, oh, gosh, you know, I've got to give away more money. But godly behavior is loving to do what is right, what is the best, what matches the character and values of God himself. And so we're to cultivate loving what is good, loving the values of God, that our hearts may be more and more attuned with or in in alignment with God's values as well. What is excellent here is also got the sense of what really matters, the priorities, what, what are first concern issues for God. And Paul uses that expression in a few other places as well. That is, we sense what what matters the most to God. We're not diverted, if you like, by more trivial things, which may be good in themselves, but not the top things for God. Paul will put it in Philippians chapter 3, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There's a top priority. The thing that matters above all is knowing Christ. Well, it's true, as Paul had said in the previous paragraph, that God will complete what he's begun in us. He said that in verse 6. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that we sit back complacently and let God complete the work. Because here and elsewhere in Philippians, of course, there is this strong exhortation, in this case, to love with abounding love, more and more and more, basically. A love that is growing in discernment and knowledge, testing and proving what is excellent, what is the best. There's a responsibility for us here. Yes, God may complete the work he's begun in us, but we are the ones also in a, in, hand in hand with that to keep growing and exercising discerning love. So my prayer, Paul says, is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best or approve what is excellent, so that, second purpose, that is one will lead to the the next thing, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word pure here has got the sense of purified, refined. That is, we, we need to be 
if you like, proven through our life as we grow in godliness and Christ-likeness and blamelessness. And here I think Paul is suggesting what really is excellent. What really is excellent, the thing we will approve, is that purity on the final day, growing in Christ-likeness for that final day. Uh, Where I live at uh, Bishop's Court near the city uh, has uh, a lot of uh, fruit trees and garden and so on. And uh, perhaps my favorite tree there is the grapefruit tree. And last year was a bumper crop. Let me say, I do nothing in the garden. I do nothing about grapefruit. We have all these volunteer gardeners who come and look after the Bishop's Court Gardens, for whom I'm very thankful. But I'm the only person who's there who eats the grapefruit. The Archbishop doesn't like grapefruit, and his wife can't eat them. And I ate, probably last year, something like 150 grapefruit over the season. It's probably a little bit too much. Uh, This year was much more uh, restrained, I think. Um, 150 grapefruit in a month or two is maybe all that good for you. Um, But when I see the tree last year, the tree is, in a sense, yellow. I don't have to sort of peel the branches back looking for the grapefruit. They're all there, staring me in the face. And Paul describes here being pure on blameless for the day of Christ He describes it as filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not just with fruit that you've got to sort of, you know, scratch away to see, well, is there this fruit of righteousness in this person or in me? It's there, fully laden, is the idea perhaps here. A bit like the grapefruit tree last season. We will see the fruit of righteousness in ourselves and in others. That's the preparation for the final day. You know, sometimes we think about our own character and think, yeah, there's a bit of patience there, but I'm often impatient. There's a bit of love there, but I'm often unloving. Yes, at times I'm generous, but often I'm stingy, whatever it is. But on this final day, fully laden, filled with the fruit of righteousness, it will be evident to all The righteousness is part of our character. This is what's excellent. This is what God approves. This is God's top priority. Not merely saving souls, but making us filled with the fruit of righteousness for the final day. And if that's God's top priority, it should be our deep love as well. That if we're loving God and loving each other, Part of that is loving to see the fruit of righteousness in ourselves and in each other growing and becoming more and more evident. Abounding love grows our purity, grows our blamelessness. Abounding love grows the fruit of righteousness. That's what Paul's prayer is on about. He's not saying, I pray that you abound in love so that we're all happy and clappy, you know, sort of uh, warm and friendly. That's not what he's got in mind here. He does have in mind fellowship and community of the people of God, but that our love for each other will be a love that promotes the fruit of righteousness in each other and in ourselves. Well, it sounds obvious in a way. 
But is our love for God motivating us to be filled with righteousness on the final day? Or is our love of God alongside complacency in moral growth? Do we love to grow in purity, in blamelessness, as we anticipate the final day? Or do we, in fact, flirt with faithlessness, stinginess, meanness, self-centeredness, and so on? That our, our blamelessness, our righteousness is a veneer for Sunday mornings or other occasions. But actually, deep down, we love our own sins. Does our love for others mean our love that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness? Or not? And is the fruit of righteousness ripening in our lives? Are our lives bursting with that fruit? But even the final day and our preparation for it is not the top priority of what Paul's prayer is. He prays that they may have love that is abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? So that you may be able to discern what is best. Why? So that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, because that is what is best. Why? The ultimate is for the glory of God. Paul writes that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from your own labor? No. That is your own achievement? No. That you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. As you know, I, or most of you know, I used to live in Malaysia. And when I lived there with CMS, I used to come here uh, every couple of years and, and sort of tell you what was going on, I suppose. And uh, in Malaysia, uh, the fruit that is controversial is called durian. Hard to get here. Uh, you can buy it here and there. Uh, it, is, uh, it smells like hell and tastes like heaven, is how people put it. I quite like it uh, in small doses, I think, uh, durian. And they call it the king of fruit. Paul, though, is urging us not to have the king of fruit, durian, but rather the king's fruit. It's the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ. It's Jesus' righteousness that is the fruit we are to be heavily laden with. It's not our own achievement. It's not our own righteousness. And so as Paul writes this prayer, I pray that your love may abound more and more with all discernment. What's the ultimate purpose that Paul is praying this prayer? Yes, the first purpose is that they may discern and approve what is best. The second purpose is that they may be ready for the day of Christ filled with righteousness. But finally and ultimately, because it's the righteousness that comes from Christ, it is, as he ends this paragraph, to the glory and praise of God. It's not our righteousness. It's not the case that on the final day we'll say to Jesus, look at my righteousness, how I've, how I've achieved this fruit of righteousness. Not at all. It's Christ's righteousness 
that is the object, the final priority, if you like, of Paul's prayer. Earlier this year, I read a new novel uh, set in Penang in Malaysia in the 1920s. It was long listed for this year's Booker Prize, uh, wrongly, unjustly, in my opinion, not shortlisted. Um, but there we are. It's a wonderful novel uh, by a friend of mine, a Malaysian friend. And I was looking forward to the novel coming out. I picked it up the day it arrived at Readings Books in Carlton and, uh, and then read it, savoured reading it over the days after that. A beautiful novel, my friend's third novel. But at the end of the book, which I really loved, I didn't hold the book and say, what a beautiful book you are. What a wonderful piece of writing you are. That would be an odd thing to do, even for me. But I wrote to my friend, the author, and said, it's a masterpiece. It's a great novel. I've loved reading it. And that's what it will be like on the final day. You see, the glory goes to the author, God. It's the fruit of Christ's righteousness that will be evident in us, not our own and not our own achievement. And so on that final day as we stand filled with the fruit of righteousness, purified and blameless in the sight of Christ, and we'll see each other gathered around the throne in the same filledness of righteousness, we won't say, wow, what a great job you've done in your life. We won't say, wow, you've, you've achieved such wonderful righteousness. The praise and glory will go to God. We'll be his masterpieces. And we'll see each other fully righteous and we'll say, what an amazing God, jo God job God has done in you. How he's transformed you and me and each other into the, the blamelessness and righteousness that comes from Christ. On that day, we will praise God. We will see each other and we'll praise God. We won't praise each other and we won't boast in ourselves. On that final day as we stand dripping, laden with the fruit of Christ's righteousness, with abounding love, unrestrained and yet discerning, with our pores pouring forth purity, with our bodies beaming with blamelessness, we will praise God. Because God has completed us. God is our author. God is our, uh, we are his masterpiece. It's not our achievement, but his. Notice in this passage, Paul does not command abounding love. He says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. Because he knows that it's Christ's work ultimately. Yes, we are to strive, but it's Christ's work. And God will complete what he's begun in us on the final day. Well, if Paul prayed for the Philippians like this, whom do you pray for like this? Do you pray for each other in the fellowship of St. Mark's that your love may abound more and more with all discernment and knowledge so that on the final day you stand filled with the righteousness of Christ? to the glory of God. Are you praying for yourself like that? 
Are you praying for each other like that? You see, Paul's prayer for the Philippians should propel us to pray out of love for each other. That we together abound in love more and more. A love that is moulded by knowledge and discernment. So that we can approve what is best. So that we on that day will be blameless, purified, filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. And all of this for the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. O God, we pray that you will work in us to make our love for each other and for you abound more and more. Approving what is excellent. Longing to be filled with the righteousness that comes from Christ. That we may then give you the honour and the glory and the praise for eternity. Amen.